please take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. We once again return to this wonderful section of scripture, Daniel chapter 11. We're continuing, as you may know, to learn about Daniel's fourth and final vision. And we are approaching the end of that vision here this week and next. We're going to read this morning uh, those last words of this vision, starting in chapter 11, Daniel 11, verse 36, and going through chapter 12 and verse 4. Daniel 11, starting in verse 36 through chapter 12, verse 4, if you would follow along as I read. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots with horsemen and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land and many countries will fall. But these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels but rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain yet he will come to his end and no one will help him now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will, be, there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase." If you have been with us for 
the preceding sections of Daniel chapter 11 or uh, Daniel chapter 10, you know that we find ourselves right in the heart of an angelic message from God. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel uh, observed a messenger who came to him. This messenger was so overwhelming in his appearance and in the sound of his words that Daniel fell down and barely had the strength to even speak, to respond at all. And uh, it took repeated encouragements from this angelic messenger for Daniel even to have the strength to hear what was being said to him. He was told that this message was in response to Daniel's prayer, his heartfelt prayer concerning what would happen to his people. Daniel at this time had been praying in light of uh, Israel's initial return to the land in their exile or from their exile in Babylon. The 70 years that were threatened and then actually promised uh, as punishment for their sins against God had taken place and Israel had begun to return in part to the land and yet they found opposition. They found uh, an inability to restore and to rebuild the temple and the city the way that they intended to be uh, intended to rebuild it. And Daniel prays and he pours out his heart before God and this angel comes in an answer to his prayer. And what he tells him is not that things are going to turn around quickly, but rather that things are going to be very difficult for quite some time. That even though God has made some promises to Israel about the way that things would happen and about how everything will work out for them very, very nicely in the end, in the interim, there's going to be a lot of hardships. And so having previously told Daniel about a series of kingdoms that would come to the earth, in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7, there was a prediction of four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, having told him about these, he begins to lay out some of the details of what that would look like from Daniel's time forward. Daniel is receiving this vision in the mid-530s B.C., this is a long time ago, 2,500 years ago. And he lays out for him what would take place over the centuries that would follow. And even as we'll see this morning, the millennia that would follow. Daniel is told that there would be three more kings arising in Persia and then a fourth with more riches than all of them. Verse 2, Daniel 11:2. Then there would be a king arise from Greece. We now know as Alexander the Great. He would die after conquering a lot of territory very quickly and his kingdom would be parceled out into four different pieces. And then we have a series of battles back and forth starting in verse 5, uh, really all the way through verse 35. Uh, between the kingdom to the north of the land of Israel and the kingdom to the south of the land of Israel. And what Daniel received as prophecy of the future, we in retrospect can see has been fulfilled in great, great detail. In extreme detail and very accurate detail. Such that, as I've mentioned previously, critical scholars who come with a skeptical eye to the inspiration and infallibility of the scripture, these critical scholars come and say there's no way that Daniel could have written this before these events happened because it's too accurate. There's no way this could be predicted. This is not possible for someone to know the future in this way. 
and therefore they assign a date to the book of Daniel that is much later than Daniel lived, uh, somewhere in the mid-2nd century B.C. Well, to be sure, the things that we've studied so far have been fulfilled by that date, by the middle of the 2nd century B.C., but there is still more to come, and that's what we find in this passage. We've seen Israel get caught up in the crossfire of these northern and southern kings going to war with one another, battling for territory. And then we saw last time that one particular king, the king of the northern Seleucid kingdom, uh, Antiochus IV, well, he focused uh, in particular upon Israel in his rage and he fought against them and he defiled their temple and he uh, exalted himself very highly and he was hostile toward them and had to be uh, stood against by the people of Israel. Ultimately, uh, them finding success in battling against him. So he targeted Israel and they responded and God delivered them at that time. But that's not all. This was in the mid-160s B.C. There's still much more to come. And that's what we begin to look at this morning. What we find in verses 36 and following is now Israel at the crossroads. Really the crossroads of all history. The final uh, attack that would come against them. The final enemy king that would rule, that would oppose the kingdom of God. We found in... Daniel chapter 2, that there would be four kingdoms and that ultimately there would be a, a, the, the kingdom pictured by the stone without hands being cut from the mountain and going and destroying these other kingdoms, destroying the statue and taking over and filling the whole earth. The kingdom of God will one day do this. But before this happens, there will be a final ruler, a final king that's going to oppose God to the greatest extent that you could imagine. And that's what this passage will refer to. Now again, you go back to these previous sections and Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV has been pictured in verses 21 to 35. Now we come and it simply says in verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. What we want to do is to identify just who this is that's being spoken of and when this king did or would rule. So we'll begin this morning by looking at the king's timing and identity. This enemy attack, this king that's mentioned in verse 36 and then all the way through verse 45, we want to know who he is and we want to know when he is going to reign. And we'll address that second question first. What is the timing of the events that's described here in verse 36 and forward? And what we'll find is that this timing is at the end time. At the end time. We'll look at this uh, from a few perspectives. If you look back in chapter 10 and verse 14, what we're going to find is the nature of this vision. Chapter 10, verse 14. What does the angel tell Daniel? Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. I will tell you what's going to happen to your people, Daniel, referring to his nation, Israel, in the latter days. And as we saw very early in the book of Daniel, the latter days refers kind of open-endedly to anything that comes later leading all the way up until the final culminating events of this age. 
of history before Christ returns and even including the return of Christ and him setting up his kingdom. But it is about the latter days, which means that this isn't just limited to Daniel's lifetime and it isn't even just limited to the time leading up to the birth, uh, the first advent of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Christ. Instead, it's something that can possibly extend all the way until the second coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God to take over the entire earth. So far, the predictions in all the way through verse 35 have taken us through the end of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, but the rest have to somehow get us to what takes place in chapter 12. And what we find in chapter 12 are things that distinctly refer to the end, the very end of all that the Bible has predicted. There is a time of great distress in the middle of chapter 12, verse 1. A time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This refers quite clearly to the time that Jesus spoke of as the tribulation period in such places as Matthew 24. Uh, a time of testing that is going to come upon the whole earth as described in Revelation 3. And then is described in uh, great detail in the book of Revelation. There will be a time of great distress that comes. And in particular this distress and this attack will come upon the nation of Israel. Although it will have uh, impact across the whole world. So you have this as one of the final events. You have verse 2 of chapter 12 where it speaks about people being raised from the dead. The resurrection of some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. There is a resurrection and a judgment that is taking place. Clearly not just speaking about the resurrection of a few or of some but also of those who are unbelieving as well. These these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And he's saying at that time when all this is happening, that's included in this prophecy and the timing at the end of it, you have this final resurrection and judgment, which is spoken of in the New Testament as taking place at the coming of Jesus Christ in that sequence of events we call the second coming. So you have this, and then you have in verse 3, you have rewards being given. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so there's going to be a reward that is given to people for how they have, uh, how they have used or how they have possessed and gained and put into practice the knowledge that they have. Um, including in particular bringing other people to that same knowledge of the truth. All of these are things that take place at the end, at a time that is beyond us even now at this very moment in the year 2023. These are things which have not happened yet. So in some way or another, verses 36 to 45 have to get us there. They are between there at some point. And what he says here in verse 12, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 12 is that this will happen at that time. These events will happen at that time. At what time? Well, at the time that he's just been describing at the end of chapter 11. All of the things that he is speaking of in this section in verses 36 to 45 are things that connect and butt up against the events that are predicted to take place even after our very own time today. So when we're looking at this, we can see that there is a very real possibility that all of these events 
are yet future, and they can at least go right with the events that are taking place that will take place in the future. Now, another point to make here. Uh, this is, uh, this is a text that describes someone that does not align with any historically recorded figure. Uh, when we read about the details of in chapter 2, uh, excuse me, in verses 2 through 20, uh, I hope you saw quite clearly that these were details that describe the events of the kingdoms of the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom and that these were recorded in history in great detail. These things have already come to pass. The same thing is true when it comes to the reign of Antiochus, verse 21, the despicable person. But when it comes to verse 36 and onward, uh, scholars struggle to find a match for the things that are described here. Certainly, they struggle to find details that align exactly with the life of Antiochus, who has just gone before. Some of them are similar, but there are things that do not match. For example, Antiochus placed a statue of one of his own so-called gods in the temple when he defiled it, as opposed to he himself going in this, or he himself not being one who worshipped any other god. So it doesn't really align that this person who would show no regard for the gods of his fathers or any other god, it doesn't align with Antiochus who has just been described. It has to be someone else. So this is clearly moving on from him into the future. Um, and he's referring to someone that has not been yet described. So here we have um, someone that it's hard to picture exactly as a historical figure. Someone that we cannot peg down as having lived yet. And on top of that, many of the events that are here have not happened yet. Um, Edom and Moab and some of the sons of Ammon, verse 41, rescued from him. Um, Egypt escaping, or excuse me, not escaping from this, which again is clearly not the case with Antiochus, who came against them, as we saw last week, and yet Rome intervened and said, You're not going to attack them, you're going to go back to where you came from. So there are things that have not yet taken place, and no one can be identified with these things, even to our own very day, that says we can put these in the future, not only from the perspective of the end of the reign of Antiochus, Epiphanes in the mid-100s BC, but even from our own day. And so there is then in this text a break of some kind. There is between verses 35 and 36 um, a jump of sorts, one that is not necessarily directly told by the text or required by the text, but as we look into the way that history has played out and the predictions have played out, we find that these are the places that have not yet happened. These are the events that have not yet come to pass because whatever the case may be of who this is, we find that his death happens at the very end time, verse 45 he will come to his end and no one will help him. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So then, the options are these. Either this king has been operating ever since this uh, Antiochus went off the scene 
So for about the last, uh, I don't know, 2170 years, 2180 years, either he's been operating the whole time in some way since then to make this consecutive, leading all the way up until whatever time the Lord Jesus may return, or we have to be okay saying that these events do not necessarily follow on the heels of one another between verses 35 and 36. And I would commend to you that view that in verse 35, he finishes speaking about the events that ended with Antiochus. And then he moves on to the next major significant individual ruler that will come against Israel. Namely, this end times ruler that's described in verses 36 and following. And that ruler goes by many names, but one of them that we can summarize him quite simply as is Antichrist. Antichrist. So he is going to rule at the end times, and he will be identified as Antichrist. Now, he's not known by that name at this point. That is more of a New Testament name, although he has several. Uh, but there are some instances in the book of Daniel already of someone who is going to reign a very powerful, hostile king who will reign immediately before things end, immediately before God sets up his kingdom. In chapter 9, we find, uh, we read in verse 26 and 27, then after the 62 weeks of the, uh, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Note that phrase, the prince who is to come. There is a ruler who is going to come. And then he'll be described in verse 27. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put to stop sacrifice and grain offering. There was a, a prediction, if you recall, from Daniel 9 of 70, quote unquote, weeks. Uh, 70 sets of seven years. And this seven-year period is described here in verse 27, that he will make a covenant. He will confirm or make strong a covenant with the many for one week. This prince who is going to come is going to confirm this covenant. And then halfway through these seven years, he'll break it. And then he will set up the abomination of desolation. He will, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, even enter the temple himself and command worship of himself as God and it says this will happen even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate he is going to be destroyed and that is the end of these 70 weeks the the events leading up to the fulfillment of all of God's promises toward Israel similarly in chapter 7 as Daniel was receiving his first vision which was the last message about the Gentile kingdoms primarily, he notes in chapter 7, verse 8, that uh, coming out of the fourth kingdom, which we can identify historically uh, in retrospect as the Roman Empire, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Behold, this horn possessed eyes, like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. We'll make some more notes of that in a moment. 
Um, It says in verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Uh, We read down in verse 23 of chapter 7, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the, the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time times and half a time you can see how this would easily line up with one time two times and half a time one plus two plus half is three and a half the same time period as half of a seven year period from chapter nine but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away annihilated and destroyed forever then the sovereignty the dominion the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of The highest one. So you can see here, once again, there is a very powerful and hostile king that rules right at the end time, right before God sets up his kingdom. Both of these then seem to refer to the same individual person. This individual person is described in the book of Revelation, chapter 13 and onward, as the beast. He is referred to in 2 Thessalonians 2 as the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. Uh, He is referred to in uh, Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation, or at least he is the one that brings that about by virtue of himself going in the temple and setting himself up as God to be worshipped. This is all one and the same person. And so here what we have in Daniel chapter 11 is a description of this man and some of his life. We learn about his character and we learn about some of the events that took place or that will take place when he comes. And this is what we're going to cover, just a brief survey of that, walking through verses 36 through 45 for the rest of our time this morning. Now, again, because these are things that have not yet happened, the historical details are not as easy to pull together as, say, verses 2 through 20, where we have great historical records of what has already taken place. And yet we can know with confidence, because these first two-thirds of the chapter have already been fulfilled with such great detail uh, under the amazing inspiration and prophecy of God, we can know that these things will come to pass as well. And when people look at this afterward, and we, when we one day look at what God does through this afterward, then we will be able to see just as clearly all the details of exactly how this worked out, and who the individuals were, and who the rulers were at that time and what the exact geographic markers were that are only here described perhaps a little bit more generally. And so we want to look at this king and we'll find out about him, this antichrist, this ultimate final ruler, uh, and we'll look at it in two parts. The king's godless principles is where we will begin in talking about and looking at what he did or what he was like. The king's godless principles are what he will be like. Uh, The first thing to note about him is that he honors himself. He honors himself, verses 36 and 37. It says, then the king will do as he pleases. He will do as he pleases. He has the opportunity to do whatever he wants because he comes into great power. But he just simply does whatever is on his mind. He has both the ability 
and the inclination to do whatever he wants. This is not common for us. Most of our wills are constrained not just by our convictions, but also by our circumstances. We can't just get away with doing anything, but this man can. He basically has the run of the whole world. He uh, just does whatever he wants to do. And first among these things is that he will exalt himself. He will exalt himself. Says that he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. I mentioned some places earlier where Antichrist is mentioned. I just want you to listen to some of the parallels here between what is said in verse 36 and some of these other places. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. In Revelation 13 4. They worshiped the dragon, that is Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, this is Antichrist, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. He exalts and he magnifies himself. And he receives and is eager to receive Worship. It says that he speaks monstrous things. This means words that are astounding or marvelous and not in the good sense, but where you drop your jaw and say, I cannot believe you would dare to say such a thing against God. But he does. He says them against the God of gods, against the true God. Once again, very clearly in parallel to the way that this final king, Antichrist, the little horn and so on is described elsewhere. For example, in Daniel 7 verse 8, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. He kept looking, Daniel 7, 11, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And in 7:25 of Daniel, it says he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. Revelation 13, 5 and 6, the beast is described this way. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. There's a third way that period of time is described. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that he is going to do this right away. In fact, if he uh, reinforces a covenant for seven years, but then breaks it in the middle, it seems like there's some kind of deception up front where at least people think from the beginning that this guy is on their side, where the Jews think that he is for us, he is with us, he wants to help us out. And yet he turns and it becomes very clear that he actually is quite opposed to them. He tricks them, but he doesn't show his cards right away. Another thing about this man is he will prosper for a time. He will prosper, it says, until the indignation is finished. The wrath or the anger. We sometimes use the phrase, he was indignant. And we're speaking about a great anger. Just an offended, upset, could not be more unhappy kind of anger. It doesn't say exactly 
what the indignation is. It could be the king's indignation against someone. It could be God's indignation upon the world or upon this king. I think the best way to understand this is the indignation that is against Israel. That God is still carrying out his judgment upon them until such time as he will fully restore them. And that this indignation against them will not be fully finished until all of this has run its course. But in either case, he will prosper only until that time. Because that which is decreed will be done. This is not going to last forever. But what God says is going to happen is going to happen. He will hold Israel under judgment for a period of time until such time as he makes good on all his promises. He will also elevate himself above all gods. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, perhaps the Roman so-called gods, or for the desire of women. <clears throat> there are a number of ways that this phrase could be understood. Uh, the desire of women, it's not particularly clear if it refers to the desire that one would have for women on the one hand, or the desire that women possess. And if it is the desire that women possess, there are some possibilities here that this refers perhaps to the desire that goes long back for a, a messianic hope, even going back to Eve. There are perhaps some desires of uh, women who uh, had a particular cult type of thing back in those days, a uh, particular kind of cult worship. But whatever the case may be, it seems here that uh, he is not interested either in them or in what they are interested in. He is set very single-minded on his power and his rule. And so he will show no regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. He is only concerned with power. He is only concerned with ruling, with glory, with getting glory, with being honored and worshipped by other people. He honors a God of fortresses, verse 38. He honors a God of fortresses. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know, and he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Once again, difficult to identify such a God who that might be because this has not yet happened. Um, there is also the possibility, which I think is actually the most likely scenario, that this God of fortresses being referred to here is something of a metaphor referring to the fact that he is only concerned not with religion, but with the religion, so to speak, of military might and of power. And he pours all of his resources into assimilating and accumulating military strength. He is greatly powerful either way. And he insists that other people treat him the way that he wants to be treated. Namely, verse 39 tells us he honors those who honor him. He honors those who honor him. Not a great trait for a ruler to have. Instead of basing it upon their character and their competence, his sole test is, do they honor me? He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. This is the nature of his character. What does he value? He values himself, he values his power, and he values those who value him. This is how self-focused, how self-centered he is. And he is ruthless in his pursuit of his own personal glory. God enables him, permits him 
to have this particular opportunity to do as he pleases with regard to this. Satan, as we read in Revelation 13, empowers this individual to be able to actually act on all that he wishes to do. Accordingly then, he is able to have quite a bit of military success. Now this does not describe every possible move that he will make. It doesn't describe every single thing that this man does. There are a number of other places in scripture that describe these. But it does give you a picture of some of the things that he would have been doing in the military activity going on in and around the land of Israel at this time and what he would ultimately do in terms of invading them and how that would all end up. So his military activities are the final thing to look at. His military activities. Um, We find... In verses 40 through 43, that he has a number of successes. He has a number of successes. He will be powerfully attacked at the beginning. The king of the south, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. Note the timing here. At the end time. At the end of verse 35... It says that many will uh, fall, those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Well, now it's here. At the end time, this king, uh, the king of the south, will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and many ships. He will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. As with uh, the rest of this section, there is a difficult, uh, difficult decision that we have to make here. About the king of the north. Is the king of the north still this particular one? At the end time the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north being him perhaps will storm against him with chariots. That is, is he identifying this one as the king of the north? And I believe it's better to understand this differently. That he is not only being attacked by the king of the south. But also by the king of the north who is a different individual from this king, from this Antichrist, and so he's being attacked on both sides. It is interesting that he that the kings here, the kings of the north and of the south, are described in this way, and you see the wisdom of God and even leaving it open like this in um, verses two through four of this chapter. He spoke very directly about Persia and Greece. But he did no such thing when it came to describing the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Uh, He just called them the king of the north and the king of the south. And when you get to verse 40, you have kings that are still coming from that direction with regard to Israel, from the south and from the north. But because it doesn't specify that it was those two particular dynasties, it's now open for different people who might come from those same territories. Now, we could speculate about who that would be. Um, It's helpful to at least constrain it to say that it's not necessarily about being geographically exactly due north or due south of Israel, but rather that the attack route is from those places. But it could be many, many years until the Lord Jesus returns. It could be many years, therefore, until these events take place. And the nations as we now know them and the names by which they are referred to and all of the other details about them could shift and change many more times. So we can certainly speculate or we could say these are what the possibilities might be if this were to happen soon. But it seems best to simply leave this open and say there will be a king of the south from somewhere in the south who will come 
and from somewhere in the north who will come as well. And yet he, this one, despite these attacks upon him, will conquer many lands. He will conquer many lands. It says he will pass, he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. There is dominance there in these particular uh, activities, these particular conquests. He will also enter the beautiful land. Clearly here, referring to the land of Israel, as has been referred to earlier in Daniel chapter 8. And even back in verse 16, um, God having this particular special place and special view of this land that he promised to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And it says this king will enter the beautiful land. He will come and he will invade and pass through. And many countries will fall, but not all of them. He will fail to conquer some. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. These countries which are sort of to the southeast of Israel and modern-day Jordan, the modern-day territory of Jordan. We don't know why he fails to conquer them or why they're rescued, but it says that they are. He then goes on in verses 42 and 43 to conquer Egypt and its neighbors. And he'll stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Not only does he conquer Egypt, but you even have these neighboring Areas, Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. A reference uh, most likely not to those who are his allies, but to those who are brought behind him, having been conquered by him. And so he has great success. But one day it will come to an end. Verse 44, we begin to learn about his defeat. His defeat. Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He has this intention to go and do this and to fight against these incoming armies from the north and the east. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. That is, he will set up in Israel, more specifically to the south. Probably referring here to the Mediterranean Sea on the west and Jerusalem to his east. And he will be right there in the land camping out as a military base and yet he will come to his end and no one will help him no one will help him this is the ultimate end of this man of this evil king he is going to die he's going to be brought to an end this end comes uh, not by men coming after him and mounting a successful rebellion it comes not by the wisdom of men to try to overthrow him rather this is the work of none other than God himself we read in Daniel chapter 2 a while ago about a kingdom that would come that would God would bring the stone was cut out but it was cut out without hands without human hands but God takes over Daniel 7, 26, the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. We read in Revelation 19 about the Lord Jesus returning, sitting on a white horse. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. It says, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. He's going to come to his end. No one's going to help him because none other than God himself is against this man. Antichrist will be replaced by the true Christ. And this kingdom of men, this opposition to God will be replaced by the kingdom of God. And all of the things will take place at that time that are described in chapter 12 in the first few verses. We will look at that and all that is promised to happen to Daniel's people as part of God's plan next time. I hope you see as we go through here God's uh, character on display. First of all, his faithfulness. That even though there will be many hard times and even though there are all kinds of self-seeking individuals in this world, that God is going to carry out his purposes. He is going to make sure and bring to pass his promises. There are a lot of things that you can look at and say, what is going to be the outcome of this? How is this going to work out? Is there any way out? Is there any way to get through this? And we look at this and say Israel has promised some really hard times. And yet God is going to fulfill his promises that he made to them. We see God's justice as God will ultimately vindicate his saints and will destroy and judge those who oppose him and who oppose his people. That evil men will not prosper forever. That evil rulers will get what's coming to them. And that no one will be there to help. And certainly then we also see the wisdom of God. That God has his ways of doing things. That we may think that there would be a better way. God, why don't you just go ahead and bring all of this now? God, why don't you avoid all of this suffering? God, why do you even have to put them through this? Haven't they suffered enough already? Some of these people will suffer even though they haven't done anything directly causing them to have this wrong come to them. And God says, trust me, I'm wise and I know what I'm doing. And we need to trust him when things in our lives don't go the way that we would expect or the way that we would choose because we know that God is wiser than us and he is working all things out for our good.